0: action-packed awesomeness, right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one. All you gotta do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the Department of Meta-Human Affairs or DMA and check it out right now. Welcome to the newest patron-only episode. Thank you so much to my newest patrons and those of you that have been around since the beginning. You guys motivate me to do a good show, and I really appreciate all of you. Tonight's episode is a little bit outside of the box, but it's a story that just kind of touched a nerve in me or something like that. And it's about the station nightclub fire. It's a story of a huge disaster and tragedy, which was the result of a seeming complete lack of concern for the safety of others, hubris and greed. And it will probably blow your mind that someone could so fundamentally fuck up fire safety to this magnitude in this modern era. The source I used for this story is a book called Killer Show by John Barilick, and he's actually a lawyer that was involved in the civil suit that arose out of this incident. It's a really good book and I highly recommend it to those of you that like nonfiction, horribly tragic stories. It definitely made me cry multiple times. When the 80s band Great White took the stage at the Station Nightclub in West Warwick, Rhode Island on February 20th, 2003, the place was packed with patrons looking for a good time. And no one could have guessed that this night would end with one of the deadliest nightclub fires in U.S. history. In this small town of only 29,000 people, this huge disaster would affect nearly every resident in some way and break the hearts of the community. The station nightclub was located in a wooden building that had been around for several decades through various businesses, most often related to food and drink. It was owned by Raymond Villanova since the 1970s, but he had tenants that owned the businesses there worry about basic maintenance, etc. He just totally was hands-off. In the mid-90s, Howard Julian purchased the current failing business there, but kept the name The Filling Station. It was a place to drink and listen to good, loud music. One of the changes he would make to the building was to cover a large portion of the wall behind the bandstand with foam pieces to act as a sound dampener for the sanity of nearby neighbors. This choice would later contribute to the magnitude of the tragedy. The building was really a fire trap for many reasons. Many of the windows were plexiglass and nearly impossible to break. There were very few doors to the outside, and those that existed were not obviously marked. There had previously been at least one other exit on the building that had long been bricked over. There were a couple of dead-end hallways, including to the bathroom, and the main entrance was a long sloping hallway that narrowed to just over 30 inches as you passed by the ticket booth to either enter the main part of the club or to head towards the front exit. By the year 2000, the business there had evolved into just being called The Station. It was known for bringing in loud rock music, both C and D-list national bands, as well as local bands. The clientele tended to be more alternative with piercings and tattoos, it was a little bit rowdy. But it was just a fun place for locals to let loose and listen to good music. That year, the station was purchased by Michael and Jeffrey Derderian, a pair of preppy young wannabe entrepreneurial brothers. They purchased the business from the previous owner, Howard Julian. They quickly became known as being basically dicks to everyone that worked for them and with them. They were stingy and preferred to pay people with cash rather than formal paychecks in order to avoid silly things like employee benefits. They also never bothered to get workers' comp insurance for the business. They paid as little as possible for everything that they purchased and they consistently made enemies by underpaying them for goods and services. After a short time, it became obvious that they genuinely did not care how many bridges they burned in the local rock music scene and they became well known for being a pair of shitheads. They yearned to be owners of a business that brought big names and they didn't care about screwing over local bands that didn't mean shit to them. One big change that they made to further dampen sound for the neighbors was to continue on with Howard Julian's idea and go ahead and cover a huge portion of the interior walls and ceiling with polyurethane foam blocks. The OSHA website describes what happens when this type of foam is ignited. It will, quote, burn rapidly, produce intense heat, dense smoke, and gases. Firemen actually refer to this type of foam as solid gasoline. Not exactly the best thing for the interior of your building. In the end, approximately 900 square feet of the interior would end up being covered in this foam. They also stacked this foam over the previous existing foam, which had lined the wall directly behind the stage. And that foam was actually polyethylene. The building would pass multiple fire safety inspections over the few years that the brothers owned the business. Local fire marshal, Dennis Laroque, did a yearly inspection of the business and it always passed. He never once noted the 900 square feet of foam on the walls and later he would say that he never saw it. At no point did anyone involved in this endeavor question the safety of packing so much foam into a densely populated wooden building, building and the fire marshal never made a note of the foam at all. And at one point, the brothers requested that LaRoque change the legal capacity for the building. They wanted to pack in as many people as possible, and he obliged by raising the capacity from around 300 to 404. He did so by describing the entire building as standing room, not taking into account the various things that took up part of this space, such as numerous pool tables, the bar, etc. Ironically, during this time frame and his other job as an on-air personality at a local TV station, Jeff Derderian would do a fire safety bit discussing the dangers of mattresses that contain polyurethane foam, somehow not connecting it in his thick skull to the hundreds of square feet of PU foam he had put all over the walls of his business. Seriously, I can't with these people. The band playing that night on February 20th, 2003, was Great White. They were a band that had been around since the late 70s and had seen a small amount of fame with songs such as Once Bitten, Twice Shy. I'm sure that you've heard it. During the 80s, they had a bit of a glam vibe, and they toured with some of the biggest bands of the decade. They were basically a band that wouldn't be anybody's number one favorite, but that if you heard them you would definitely recognize their songs by 2003 the band was pretty washed up and touring the US in a tour bus playing very small venues one holdover that held on they held on to from their glam rock days was the use of pyrotechnics which as you might have guessed will become important in the story many many bands had played the station over the years using pyrotechnics with permission freely given by the business owners including the derderians bands like great white couldn't afford great pyro so they would buy it on the cheap and sort of macgyver their own setup they rarely if ever adhered to fire safety rules which mandated permits for the pyro and the involvement of a licensed pyrotechnician the pyrotechnics that they used consisted of a sparkler set up on the stage that would be shot off and rain sparks over the crowd. The device is called a gerb and it, quote, produces a dense plume of sparks sparks, with little or no post-burn ash. The sparks it showered the room with were essentially tiny pieces of metal with an estimated height reach of about 15 feet. The band manager for Great White was a guy named Dan Bichel, and though he rarely, if ever, bothered to get the correct permits for the pyro, he always checked with business owners before setting off pyro at shows there. The lead singer of the band, Jack Russell, spent the 20th going throughout various places in town and making friends with people he came across and inviting him to the show as part of his guest list. Unfortunately, his invitation would doom several people on that list. And the night of the show, actual tickets had been sold out early in the night But the box office continued to sell makeshift tickets written on scraps of paper. The business never bothered to actually pay attention to capacity during shows. They just wanted to sell as many tickets as possible. And that night, there were approximately 460 people packed into the building, well over the recently elevated number of 404. Ironically, at what would become the last show at the venue ever, the brothers had invited a guy that they planned to sell the business to to come check out how the business ran. And coincidentally, that night, a cameraman from the TV station where Jeff worked was actually going to be filming footage inside the club and discussing nightclub safety. This was in response to an incident a few days prior in which 21 people were crushed in a Chicago nightclub. The cameraman was named Brian Butler, and before the night was over, the footage he would shoot in the club would be all over news stations across the country. The band began their first song around 11 o'clock and quickly began shooting off pyrotechnics. Within just a few seconds, they had struck the foam walls, which quickly ignited. The fire licked up the walls, spreading extremely fast, thick black smoke rapidly began to fill the room from the ceiling down, making the crowded room dark and causing disorientation and panic. And worse yet, bits of the foam were catching on fire and falling off the ceiling onto the people below. The station had actually previously been grandfathered in under old rules, which did not require a sprinkler system in a public place. And the brothers had never bothered to get one, of course, because they're cheap bastards and there was only one working fire extinguisher in the main bar area, and it was no match for the quickly growing fire. In fact, 90 seconds from the moment of ignition, the entire building would be full of smoke and nearly entirely engulfed in flame. Anyone that had not escaped before was now going to be an extreme risk of injury or death. It was also later calculated that within 90 seconds of ignition, As the building quickly filled with smoke, the oxygen in the room went down to 2% concentration, which would cause many people to pass out and just die where they lay. Most people would instinctively head for the front exit, but there were so many people trying to push through the narrow corridor to the front door that some people began to fall and be trampled. Others were pushed on top of them And eventually there was just a massive human pileup wedged near the front door and no one could get past it to the outside. There was a door directly behind the stage, which most of the band members exited through. A few other people attempted to follow them out that door, but for some reason, security turned some of them away, stating band exit only, despite the fact that the entire fucking room was on fire. Some of the people they turned away would not make it out at all. As the seconds passed, heavy black smoke and flame billowed across the entire ceiling, growing bigger and bigger as it extended lower into the room, causing people to have to crawl if they wanted to breathe. Many people lost their husbands and wives, significant others, friends, family members, and bandmates in the smoke only to later realize their loved one had not made it out. Ty Longley of the band, Great White, who was actually a session musician, was one of the unlucky ones that did not make it out. Many people rushed to the large windows only to realize they were made of plexiglass and were damn near impossible to break. However, there were a few glass windows below the plexiglass that some people were able to break and climb through. One 27-year-old man named Seamus Horan became a hero that night when he smashed out a glass pane, and rather than run off into the fresh air, he stayed at the window and continued to pull people out as long as he could, despite the smoke billowing into his face. He saved at least a dozen lives that day. He was joined by a guy named Rick Sanite, who had met Jack Russell at Denny's that day and gotten on his guest list. Both men kept reaching in and pulling people out until there were no more people close enough to grab onto. Interestingly enough, Seamus would later become a hero again, years later after the fire, when he saved a woman and a toddler from a car that had gone into a river. Some people are just born to be heroes. A few people would later have memories of just passing out in the club only to wake up outside having been saved by an unknown stranger. Throughout it all, the TV cameraman Brian Butler filmed the interior of the building and the exterior once he was able to exit. He never stopped to help anyone. After several minutes, he called his TV station and gave them the breaking news so they could hurry over and film. While the pileup at the front door continued to block anyone from exiting that way, there were a few other completely free exits in the building, but since they had never been marked with exit signs, they were nearly impossible to find in the dark panic of the building. While a few patrons randomly stumbled upon these exits and managed to get free, they were mostly utilized by employees. The pileup at the front door was dozens of people deep, The people at the bottom were being crushed by those on top of them, and the people up higher were being rained on by burning pieces falling from the ceiling. At least one young woman in this pile survived because of being trapped so close to the open door, she was able to breathe, and luckily a stranger was able to pull her from the crush of bodies before the flames reached them. Eventually, though, the flames reached this pile of people, ensuring almost none of them survived. But one lucky man would miraculously survive being in this pile after an hour. When he was pulled free by a fireman, everyone around him had suffered extreme burns, but he had only minor injuries and was able to get up and walk away on his own. Later, during body recovery, 31 bodies would be found wedged in the narrow hallway. Within two minutes of ignition, everyone left in the building was beyond rescue and flames licked out of every doorway and window. Parts of the club had reached 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit during this time period. When it became apparent that no one else could be rescued from the club, 96 people were still left inside, having lost their lives in the tragedy. In the following days, weeks, and months, four more injured people would pass away, bringing the total number of victims to 100. Once the fire department had done their job and put out the flames, it was then time for body recovery. One lone medical examiner investigator named Jay Kingston would spend the next 17 straight hours in the freezing cold working on body recovery. Not surprisingly, within a year, he developed severe PTSD which greatly exacerbated some diabetic issues of his, but he would survive. The station was right next to a place called the Cowsid Inn, a rather nice food and drink place, which was soon going to become the main location for triage of the victims. With literally hundreds of victims injured, it was going to be a massive production to get help for all of them, and several dozen ambulances and EMT units were dispatched to the location. Nearly 200 injured people were sent to nearby hospitals, some so badly burned they could not be identified. The restaurant owner and employees stayed throughout the night to provide food and water to victims and responders. None of the ambulances or EMT units charged for their services that night. Even nurses that had seen the story about the fire on the news arrived to help the victims without being asked. And the TV station cameraman on hand meant that his TV station was quickly alerted to the catastrophe and reporters would rush to the scene and stay for hours capturing footage. 45 minutes after the fire started, the footage from Brian Butler was broadcast on the news which led to dozens of people coming to the site looking for loved ones and flocking to any of the local hospitals involved trying to find a missing loved one. Since identification of many of the burn victims took a while to make, some people would be left waiting for days to find out if a loved one was injured or dead. Law enforcement would use missing persons reports from friends and family members along with cataloging the owners of the vehicles left in the parking lot to try to figure out who they had to identify among the injured and dead, since in many cases the person or body did not have ID or ID had been destroyed in the fire. But family members were quickly diverted to the Crown Plaza Hotel in Warwick, which was the family meetup center for those that were looking for answers. There, they would fill out missing persons reports and provide specific identifying details of their loved ones to hopefully be found as an unidentified victim in a hospital, many of whom were in comas for days or weeks afterward. They would also give information on dentists to get dental records in case their loved one was suspected to be dead. As the days went on, it became less and less likely that any of the families remaining were going to receive the slightly better news that their loved one was in hospital. Through it all, the hotel paid for food and drink for everyone for days on end, and emotional support animals were brought in to comfort the families. Within five days of the tragedy, however, autopsies of all the dead were completed and everyone had been identified. Once the wreckage had been sorted through, as well as possible by first responders, a special team was brought in. This was a forensic archaeology team that had been formed in the wake of 9-11. Months after 9-11, this team came to the World Trace Center site to sort through the debris in the search of human remains. They had already seen the very worst mass tragedy in U.S. history, and now they brought the skills they had learned to the station fire site To search for human remains and personal effects. This was a group of volunteers made up of Professor Richard Gould from Brown University and many of his archaeology students. They would work several hours a day for several days in freezing temperatures in an effort to provide closure for loved ones and to make sure that all human remains had been removed from the site before the site was released by law enforcement. By the end of a week of work, they had found 54 pieces of human remains and 88 personal items which could be returned to family members. And after the immediate aftermath, it now became time to question how something this catastrophic could have occurred and who may have played a part in it. The club manager, the sound man, and the owners would insist to law enforcement that pyrotechnics had never been involved at the club. But this would later be proven to be an obvious lie, as many people had personal knowledge of having seen or even done pyrotechnics at previous shows there, including over a dozen bands throughout the years, including the years that the Derderians had owned the business. The only person involved heavily in that night and who was at least physically the most responsible for starting the fire was Great White's road manager, Dan Bischel, who had actually started the pyrotechnics. He was the only person that had a hand in the event that actually worked with law enforcement and didn't lie to cover his own ass. He would end up being the only person directly involved in the event that seemed to be truly remorseful for the tragedy. The state of rhode island began to gear up for a huge trial for those involved thousands of people had personal connections to the victims and desperately wanted to see the perpetrators punished it also became obvious quite quickly that there were going to be numerous numerous civil suits as a result of the fire seeing the writing on the wall the Darderians would end up filing for bankruptcy before a civil suit could go forward in order to protect their personal assets. They were shitheads through and through. Just a week after the fire, a grand jury was summoned for the first of many hearings in relation to indictments for this fire. After several months, the grand jury decided to indict the owners and Dan Bichelle for 100 charges of involuntary manslaughter. Many people believed that there were other people that deserved to be indicted, such as Fire Marshal Dennis LaRocque, who had failed to notice the foam covering the walls to the club multiple times. However, he would receive no form of punishment for his complete inability to do his one fucking job. It would be revealed that the owners had never purchased workers' comp insurance, so for the several employees that died in the fire, their families would receive nothing for workers' comp. But unfortunately, Rhode Island was not going to get the trials they wanted as plea deals were offered to everyone indicted. Dan Bichel actually sent letters of condolence to the families of every single victim and he would end up pleading guilty to 100 counts of involuntary manslaughter. And after experiencing two full days of victim statements and delivering his own tearful apology, he was sentenced to four years in prison but he would end up serving less than two years. Victims and families of victims saw that he was the only person that seemed truly remorseful and many wrote letters on his behalf to the state parole board asking for leniency for him. The Derderian brothers would both plead no contest in exchange for a plea deal. Even worse, victims would make statements at sentencing with the knowledge that the judge had already decided the sentence. When they spoke at sentencing, neither of the Dardarian brothers took any responsibility for the events. Michael was sentenced to four years, which actually only included nights at a minimum security prison with day release. And his brother Jeffrey got his entire sentence suspended so he would not have to serve a single day in prison. Michael would end up serving only two years and some change before being released for good time. Many people believed that the owners had not received due punishment, and I have to agree. A few of the survivors would end up remaining in the hospital for months, and a couple had to have some of their limbs and digits amputated, along with having multiple skin grafts. The worst had third and fourth degree burns on over 50% of their bodies. One young man named Joe Keenan survived and lived a happy, optimistic life, despite losing his ears, nose, lips, and one eye. The last victim of the fire died nearly three months after the fire happened. It was a 33 year old woman who had lost both hands and who had 100% of her face deeply burned. She had never been well enough to be brought out of her medically induced coma, and she died with her parents by her side. A few years after the fire, multiple local law firms, including dozens of lawyers, decided to join forces to work on the huge civil lawsuit. They would be representing 567 victims and family members. It was going to take several years and a lot of work to see the lawsuit through, and all of the lawyers worked on a contingency fee basis, meaning that they would only receive payment based on the final payout, which made it much easier for the victims, many of whom could not afford to pay hourly lawyer fees while the suit was in work. The combined efforts worked to investigate all possible causes of the deadly fire. The lawyers discovered that the previous business owner had put polyethylene foam on a large portion of the main wall behind the stage, which was later covered with polyurethane foam. The combination of these two materials was a recipe for an extremely fast spreading fire that quickly produced incredibly toxic smoke. Scientists at a fire safety center conducted tests and discovered that the combination of these two types of foam caused the fastest ignition and spread of any materials they had ever tested. This put the producers of the polyethylene and polyurethane blocks both in the pot of defendants, which would greatly increase the likelihood of a large payout. The lawyers found that many companies that still sell this foam today don't mention its extremely flammable nature or give any sort of warning that it should not be used or it might be near anything flammable. Many still sold it as sound dampening material, which would of course make the consumer think it was safe to put up on walls. One interesting person that ended up on the defendants list was Brian Butler, who had made the video inside the club. He and his TV station were sued because Butler's own video showed that not only did he never stop to help anyone, but that at one point, He completely halted the flow of traffic to an exit so he could stand there and get his shot. A few years after the fire, law enforcement was able to get audio from an audio tape that had been found in the pocket of a deceased patron. The audio recorded from ignition and for several minutes afterward. And it was nightmarish audio that chilled even the most hardened of cops. Three years into the civil lawsuit, a master complaint was filed against 87 defendants, including only the most peripherally involved, on behalf of 567 plaintiffs. The payout amount eventually rose to $176 million, which the dozens of lawyers involved had to figure out how to disperse to the victims based on a point system for each victim. It was a long and complicated process that took several years to complete, before anyone was able to finally receive a payment. It took into account the victim's earning potential, the level of their disability, their number of dependents, and so on. By the end, the lawyers felt like they had done the fairest job that they could. On a patch of ground where the station once was, a simple, simple memorial sprang up with 100 crosses. Even years after the fire, The memorial would receive daily visitors bringing flowers, notes, and gifts to their loved one's cross. Thank you for listening. I chose to do this story because I stumbled across the book a few years ago and was amazed that I had never heard of this event. I was shocked at the seeming injustice that occurred afterwards and as someone with piercings and tattoos that loves going to loud shows, I identified quite a lot with the victims. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you so much for your patronage. It means so much to me. Good night.